Our text for this morning is uh, Ephesians chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verse 3. But actually, verses uh, 3 through 14 uh, comprise uh, uh, really the, the, the thought. And um, actually, in the, in the Greek New Testament, it's uh, one sentence, which uh, allows uh, considerable debate, if you will, uh, over where uh, sentences in English uh, might be uh, placed. Who's going who's gonna to put a comma where? Who's going to put a period where? Who's going to emphasize what? Uh, so, uh, but by and large, uh, you know, most expositors and most uh, Bible translations come fairly close to one another. But just so that you know that uh, this really is one big section, and um, what Paul does is in verse uh, 3, he just, he praises God, and then in verses 4 through 14, he gives any number of reasons why that ought to be the case. Uh, again, he's doing it to encourage uh, the, uh, the Ephesians and, uh, and us as well. So rather than just read verse 3, I'm going to read verses 3 through 14 uh, and then uh, focus on verse 3. I'm reading from the New American Standard, so if your phrasing uh, is a little different, if your period's in a different place, um, well, you know, just have to go with the flow, as they say. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Indeed. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we recognize uh, as... uh, as Paul is wont to do sometimes, that he just uh, piles uh, one uh, thing upon another, uh, praising you and extolling all that you are and have done. And it, uh, it amasses, Lord, such a, a rich picture of, uh, of your glory and your greatness and your grace to us that one can hardly stand before it and not have their mouths drop open. Indeed, Paul's dropped open, even as he spoke here, wanting above all things 
for us to get some small sense of the glory of the God who has covenanted himself to us through Christ. We pray that our hearts might be lifted today as we begin to look at this most magnificent portion of Scripture, and that your Holy Spirit would teach us and instruct us, and indeed enlarge our heart's capacity for Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <coughs> and there was a man named Samuel Skull, and Samuel settled with his family in the Arizona desert. And uh, they lived out, you know, of course, away from town. And one night, a, a really fierce storm struck. It was high winds and hail and rain. And it was just, it was an awful storm. And uh, about daybreak, Samuel uh, left the house and he went out to uh, take a, a look at what was going on. And it was daybreak and the light was just beginning to, to come. And uh, he didn't like what he saw. The hail had beaten the garden flat, just done. The rain had, uh, had washed rivers of, of mud down through uh, portions of, his, uh, of his, uh, uh, the, the yard in that part. Uh, the wind had blown uh, half his uh, roof off his house and had literally destroyed the, uh, the chicken coop. Dead chickens lay everywhere because they had been uh, beaten to death by both the wind and the hail. Destruction, devastation, that's all he could see. And he's standing there, just sort of dazed and, and evaluating what, what, he, what he saw and, and then just trying to begin to make uh, uh, some small plans for the future. What was he going to do? And he heard a stirring in the lumber pile over here that was, well, what remained of the hen house. And uh, as he watched, all of a sudden he saw this old rooster come poking his head out, out, out of the debris and begins to climb what's left of the structure and doesn't stop until it gets up to the very top and as soon as it spots the light in the east beginning to to come up flaps his bony almost featherless wings and goes well did it much better than that maybe not I don't know but he crowed as loudly as he could well, that's precisely the response that Paul wants the Ephesians to have. And I, tell you, I say this because, as you know from what we saw last week, the Ephesians faced a very difficult situation in their lives. They, they lived in a major city, right? And the major city, like any major city, was, was full of temptation and sin. And some people were, you know, just filled with lust and materialism and power and, and uh, uh, all the other things that, that come with it. And the people in the church themselves, they, they were tempted to the same things as their neighbors. Not only that, but they lived in a church in which the Gentile Christians were just beginning to come in and the Jewish Christians were really uncomfortable with them. And so there were tensions in the church itself. And Paul basically says, in the face of all this, the very first thing I want you to do is to praise God. Bless God. Now he says that same thing to us. It's sort of like, you know, when, when that old wet rooster could still crow in the morning sun. When the very response that he had was, even though his world had fallen apart, his, his chicken coop was gone. The sun, the goodness of the sun, the recurrence of the sun caused him to crow. 
Paul is saying, you know, no matter what your circumstance, I know you're struggling. I know things are hard. I know there are problems. But God's goodness, God's goodness can be seen new and fresh every single morning. And your response ought to be to praise God. Why is that the case? Well, he tells us three things, believe it or not. Pastors could always find three things in a verse. (laughs) But the very first thing he says is because of who God is. The second thing is because of what God has done. And the third is because why God has done it. And that's what I want to do is, is proceed that way because that's exactly how Paul proceeds. So let's look at what Paul says. The first reason we are to praise God is because of who God is. And Paul shows us exactly how it should be done. He says, blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this word that's translated blessed or in other translations maybe praised is the word from which we get our English word eulogy. Okay, eulogy. And what is a eulogy? Well, as you all know from your experiences, eulogy is a, is a message of, of praise or commendation. It, it declares a person's goodness. But Jesus tells us that no one is good, truly good, but God. And so our supreme eulogy, if you will, our supreme praise, our supreme blessing ought to be for God alone. And the reason is, is because the ultimate characteristic or attribute about God is his blessedness, is his goodness. That is his very nature. God the Father does good things in such a way that that no one, no one can even begin to come close to that with the exception of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so it is from beginning of Genesis to the end of the Bible and Revelation, we see godly men recognizing this goodness, this greatness of God, and extolling him, blessing him for it. Early on in Genesis, we see this, this man called Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king of Salem. He was also a high priest. And he said these words. He said, Blessed be God most high. Go to the end of the Bible. Go to Revelation. And John says these things. He says, In the last days, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them will be heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Nothing is more appropriate for the people of God than to bless the name of God, to praise God. It is the very reason that you and I come together to worship, isn't it? I mean, that is the primary purpose. Blessing God is to be the very beginning, the starting point, as well as the highest point of our worship. It's what it's all about. We don't come to hear the sermon except that the sermon ought to, ought to move us to consider the great things of God and to praise Him. We don't come to pray and ask for all the things that we want. We come and pray to the God who was such a great giver, who was such a lover of our souls that He will give us the things that we need. But all of our 
time together on a Sunday is to be a worship, the extolling in some fashion his great person. Now we shouldn't be surprised then that this one who is supremely good and the supreme giver in and of himself bestows good gifts. Right? We saw in James when we, when we studied that epistle. James reminds us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. And Paul assures us that when God gives us things, whether he allows these good things or bad things, if we might consider them to come into our lives, nevertheless God uses those things to accomplish good things in us and for us. Farmers in southern Alabama at one time used to plant only one crop, cotton. That was it, cotton. And they would get up and they would beginning of the, uh, the season, they would plow every single square foot of land that they had and seed it for cotton. And then all season long, they would wait for it to grow. And they would pray that it wouldn't flood. They would pray that they'd get enough rain so that it would grow. It was just this, this constant tension. Well, one year, the dreaded bull weevil attacked southern Alabama. And those poor farmers had their crop of cotton absolutely devastated. They didn't know what to do, so they did what every farmer does. He goes out and he borrows. Right? They mortgaged their homes, maybe a second or third time, to the bank in order to get enough money to hopefully to make it next year. In the second year, they went out and they planted their cotton again. And they waited. And that dreaded bull weevil came back again. Devastated their crops, destroyed, decimated the entire cotton crop. Well, at that point, many of them went absolutely bankrupt. There was nothing left to do. But there were a few who had just enough money left to invest in something different for the third year. And they took a risk on some new crop called peanuts. Peanuts, yeah. Well, they planted peanuts. And they reaped a harvest. Peanuts are so hardy, almost nothing destroys them. And it turns out there was an incredible market for them. So they sold their peanuts at a killing. And they made enough money to pay off everything they'd lost for the first two years, prepare them for the next year. And in Thanksgiving, they went to the center of the town and erected a statue to the bull weevil. <laughs> Why? Because somehow they understood that if it hadn't been for the bull weevil destroying their cotton crop, they'd have never gotten into peanuts, which turned out to be a lot more stable and a lot more lucrative. Well, our good God does that in our lives. He uses the bull weevils of our lives to, to draw us to those things which are of a greater blessing. See, when we bless God, we speak good of Him. When God blesses us, He does good to us. That's very different. We bless God with words. God blesses us with His deeds. All we can do is, is speak well of him because we have nothing good in and of ourselves to give to him. Right? 
We have nothing good in of ourselves to give to him. And he can't bless us for our goodness precisely because we're sinners. Instead, he blesses us with his goodness. Our good and blessed Heavenly Father, he lavishes good gifts upon us. Every good gift, every good blessing comes from him. That is his nature, and frankly, that's our need as well. Well, the second reason we're to praise God is because of what God has done. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessing. Now, in our age, we're likely to immediately think spiritual, material. Okay, that must be the contrast that Paul's talking about. There are some things that are material, there are some things that are immaterial. All right? And so we're more likely to think, okay, so God wants to give us hope, or he wants to give us joy, or he wants to give us maturity, when in fact what we really need is money to pay for the car, or money to do this, or, you know, a vacation, or whatever it happens to be. We tend to think in material terms, and when we read the word spiritual, we just think, well, that's the opposite. Well... There's a certain sense in which that is true, but in the New Testament, this particular word spiritual is always seen in relationship to the Holy Spirit. So he's not really contrasting immaterial blessings with material blessings. He's talking about the way it comes to us. The way the blessings come to us is by the working of the Holy Spirit of God. So spiritual here refers to the source of the blessing, not the type of blessing. Now these blessings come to us, as we all know, from Jesus Christ, but they are mediated to us by the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's the Holy Spirit who ultimately works these things out in our lives. It is the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, that comes to us, not the fruit of Jesus Christ, It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is His working in us. Now, what is Paul's point? Why does does he make this point to begin with? Well, I want you to think with me. There's, There's a really wonderful thing taught in Scripture about Jesus Christ when He began His ministry. Remember when He was down at the at the river? Right? He's being baptized by John right at the beginning of his ministry. He's going he's to go out and he's going to preach the gospel and, and do everything else that he's going to do. And what happens? The Holy Spirit descends as a dove from heaven and sits upon him. Why does he do that? Well, it was to enable him and to anoint him for his great task. In other words, it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to descend upon Jesus Christ because as a man, he was going out into this world to conduct the business of his heavenly Father. Now, in the same way that the Holy Spirit enables Jesus Christ to have conducted himself, the Holy Spirit has been given to us. He indwells us for the very same purposes, so that we too might go forth and accomplish and do those things that God wants us to do in the way that he wants us to do them. Now, it's precisely at this point that I think many Christians, including myself, tend to make a mistake. In our own weakness, we tend to cry out to God for things that he's already given us. For instance, 
We pray that we might love more. When in fact the scriptures tell us that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We pray for peace. Give me peace. I'm anxious, Lord. Give me peace. But Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. We pray for happiness and joy. But Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. We pray for strength. When in fact Paul tells us that by the Spirit of God we can do all things. Because of Jesus Christ. In fact, Peter confirms this in his second epistle. In that very first chapter, in the third verse, he says this. He says, God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Should I say that again? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) God's divine power has granted to us, all of us, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It's not that God will give us what we need. It's that he's already given us what we need. He has blessed us already with every spiritual blessing in order to attain a life of godliness That pleases God. To put it another way, these, these, these gifts, if you will, are not simply promised. We already possess them. In fact, Paul says in Philippians uh, chapter uh, 1, he says, Every Christian has the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, God can't give us more than he's already given us in his Son. There's nothing more for us to have. You've already got it. I love the way that Alexander McLaren puts his finger on the real nub of the issue then. McLaren said this. He says, we may have as much of God as we will. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hands and bids us take all we want. If a man is admitted into the bullion bullion vault of a bank and told to help himself and comes out with one penny, whose fault is it that he's poor? In other words, God has given us everything in his Holy Spirit right up front. The believer's need there is not to ask for something more as if we lack it. But to do something more with what we have. In fact, our heavenly position is so secure that Paul speaks of us as already having been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And in fact, that's exactly where he moves next, this final phrase. Paul adds that we are to praise God because of why he has done all this. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. It's really interesting. When you read the scriptures, what you see is that Christians have sort of a paradoxical, uh, a two-level existence, if you will, a dual citizenship. They live in heaven, they're citizens of heaven, and they're citizens of this earth, this world, at the same time. 
Let me see if I can illustrate it. If, if an American citizen travels abroad, okay, doesn't matter where you go, doesn't matter if you go to Asia, doesn't matter if you go to Africa, doesn't matter if you go to Antarctica. Wherever you go, you are as much a citizen of the United States, wherever you are, as if you're here. Okay? You don't lose your rights as an American citizen. You still have every right as an American citizen, no matter where you are. And as citizens of of God's kingdom, as heavenly citizens, Christians hold the rights and privileges that are ours there as well. And even while we're living in foreign territory, if you will, while we're living on the earth, still everything that God has said is ours remains ours. All the privileges, all the possessions, all of it. And the key to living that way as heavenly citizens in a foreign land, Paul tells us, is to walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit isn't some spooky thing. Simply means to live consistently with what the Scripture says. To do what the Bible tells us to do. Because the Holy Spirit enables us to do that. Paul finally says that we are to do this Because we're in Christ. This is why God gives us these blessings. Because we're joined to his son. Now there's something really, and this is one of the most important concepts in in all of scripture. That when we become Christians, God does something that unbeknownst to us, joins us to his son in a way that makes us forever different makes us forever his and joins us to a son in a way that means that everything that belongs to Jesus or everything that happened to Jesus is ours or has happened to us. So for instance, if you look at Romans chapter 5, what do you see? You see that Jesus died to sin. And so we died to sin with him. He was raised, right? He was raised to a life in which he glorified his Father. And we've been raised to that newness of life as well. But as you look throughout the scriptures, you see that there's far more, that that Christ's riches are our riches, that his resources are our resources, that his righteousness is our righteousness, that his access to the Father is, is our access to the Father. His possessions are our possessions. You can go on and on and on and on. Now these are just some of the, the many things that are ours in Christ because we are joined to him because of what God has done. There was a minister who was addressing a, a, a group of men. He took a, a piece of paper kind of like this one and he put a dot on it like that. And he held it up. And he asked the men, he said, what do you see? Ooh, ooh. I see a dot. He said, what else do you see? Silence. Don't you see anything else, he said? Nobody said anything. No, no, we don't see anything. He said, 
The paper. The paper, don't you see the paper? So much larger. And then he began to apply that. And he said this. He said in life, he says, we're often distracted by the small dot-like distractions, failures, sins of our lives. And somehow we become oblivious to the greater things that God is doing and has done. All the good gifts that come to us. All his mercies. All his grace. All of his kindness. He says it's the difficulties that monopolize our attention. And that somehow we just forget to see all the other stuff. And this is precisely Paul's point. He says, brethren, don't worry about what's going on in Ephesus or Greenfield or even so much times in your own hearts. He says, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and remember what kindness God has done and it's not that this spot will go away but it will certainly be placed in its proper perspective let's pray Father we are uh, uh, amazed at how much Paul puts in a single verse and how, how true it is. You are a God who is blessed forever. Amen. And you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. You bless us. And you, O oh God, are one who does so by the great working of your Holy Spirit. Giving to us everything we need for life and for godliness. And you do this because we are joined to your Son. We have been adopted as your own children. We are loved as you love him. This is extraordinary. And we know that Paul's going to go on and begin to articulate these things in greater detail. Oh God, give us a sense. Give us a hunger. Give us a desire to hear what you have to say to us these coming weeks, we pray. And change us thereby. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, closing him.